This is the last day of this October 2020 five-day online session. We'll return to uh, the anthology uh, that we were reading from yesterday, uh, a book called Zen Essence, translated and edited by Thomas Cleary. And uh, we left off uh, reading from the teachings of uh, Zen, Zen master Yuan Wu, the, uh, the author of uh, the Blue Cliff Record. He, he says, Zen practice requires you to see your essential nature and understand ultimate truth. Consider that, that statement. It's worth repeating. Zen practice requires you to see your essential nature and understand ultimate truth. Too many people think that awakening to their self-nature is beyond them. They, they know, they uh, believe at some level that uh, because we are all originally enlightened, that that has to be something we can all realize. But still, if you dig down a little further, you see that there's, they're not convinced. They really don't have the faith yet that they are truly awakened and nothing stands in their way yet. It's the beautiful thing about Zen practice. Uh, our faith grows through sitting and active Zazen it grows. We're never stuck with who we think we are. This is fundamental, fundamental point of the Dharma, no self, no one we're stuck with, no one lacking faith, no one beset by doubt permanently, just temporarily. We grow this faith. We learned, we learn more and more to trust the practice we're working on. He continues, immediately forget feelings and detach from perceptions, so your heart is clear and your mind is simple, not comparing gain and loss, not making a contest of better or worse. Yeah, with these two uh, pairings that he mentions, these are two of the most troublesome things for uh, Zen practitioners, uh, not comparing gain and loss not making a contest of better or worse. 
These are just discriminations. Discriminations have their place. We, we do it a lot in our daily lives. We need to. We need to distinguish between this and that. But not in Zazen we don't. We, we have to be alert to when we are discriminating. Because we don't need to. Well, sometimes people say, wait a minute, uh, I needed to discriminate between uh, thoughts and breath, let's say. Well, not really. You just need to notice when you're caught in some thoughts and just return to the breath. It's not the same. It's not the same as uh, dividing things. The most, the most diabolical kinds of discriminations uh, in Sashin, or you're outside Sashin, but it becomes more glaring in Sashin, is comparing oneself to others. Comparing what one thinks of one's own practice, for what, what that's worth, think, what, comparing what one thinks of where one's at in one's practice uh, to where others are at. How ridiculous. What a waste of time to do this kind of comparing and, and painful. I remember ugh, that person, that person. I mean, the pain was when I saw them as more advanced than me, but it's basically just as uh, uh, disturbing in the mind if we think if you think we're better than others it's unnecessary it's uncalled for it's just a nuisance misuse of the mind comparing oneself to others and also gain and loss imagining advancing retreating falling back making progress regressing just a lot of clutter. This is something that is dividing this indivisible mind. This uh, statement where he says, immediately forget feelings and detach from perceptions. Okay, obviously he's not saying don't have feelings and he's not saying don't have perceptions. When he says forget feelings, he means don't cling to them. They're like all other uh, body-mind phenomena, like thoughts and emotions. They come, they last a while, a shorter or longer period of time, these feelings, whatever they are, and then they move on through. Don't get stuck in them. And, on the other hand, don't try to suppress them. When he says detach from perceptions, uh, that is to not get caught in self-conscious perceptions. Uh, thinking that it's, there's an I here that's perceiving that there. 
Yuan Wu then says, cut through all situations and don't allow yourself to continue with thoughts of whether these situations are favorable or adverse. <clears throat> well, whether that is whether you want them or don't want them, whether you like them or you don't like them, eventually you will naturally reach the realm of non-doing and unconcern. But if you have the slightest desire for unconcern, this has already become a concern. This realm of non-doing, the Chinese word is uh, Wu Wei. And as probably most of you know, it doesn't mean just sitting around in a hammock, lying in a hammock and doing nothing, wasting time. It means whatever we're doing, to be doing it with no thought of self, not not with doing it um, free of the encumbrance of thoughts, especially the thought of self. Non-doing means, means responding or acting with an empty mind, no-mindedly. Very advanced state. But it advanced as a state, but it doesn't mean it'd take you years to get there. We can we can have uh, moments of this, fleeting experiences of this um, no-minded activity. Uh, sometimes when we least expect it. I've heard many people in Doksan describe some uh, fleeting experience of this. Usually it doesn't last, but it can have quite an impact on one's faith in this practice, in the, in the Dharma. Sitting, daily sitting, especially when supplemented by Sashin, uh, daily sitting um, leads us more easily into uh, moments of non-doing, of no-mindedness. It happens by itself. We don't have to be making a project out of it. Just the more sitting we do, in any given week or day or month, the more sitting we do, the more likely that we'll just discover ourselves, find ourselves without trying uh, in these moments of no thought. And that's when everything comes alive in a whole different way. He says, if you, if you have the idea of superiority and are proud of your ability, this is a disaster. Yeah, one sentence seems pretty self-evident, doesn't it? 
pride, conceit, uh, is just a form of egotism. But the opposite is also egotism. That is, uh, thinking that we are inadequate or that we're less than others, we're inferior to others. It's just two different brands of egotism. Some people are more inclined to think that they're superior to others and others it's the opposite. In uh, the Buddha, uh, talks about two kinds of craving, the craving for existence and the craving for non-existence. This is not quite the same, but it's related. Craving for non-existence is to somehow want to not be seen, disappear, well, that's, that really is kind of what we want in Zen practice, but another way to understand these two cravings are one is to be somebody and to be nobody. Nobody in, in, in not the Dharma sense, uh, but the kind of shrinking, timid sense. He says, if you can give up your former knowledge and understanding, thus making your heart open, not keeping anything at all in your mind, so you experience a clear, empty solidity where speech and thought do not apply, you will directly merge with the fundamental source, sinking into the infinite, spontaneously attaining inherent wisdom that has no attainment. Yeah, has no attainment. How can we attain our intrinsic nature? And he says, this is called thorough trust and penetrating insight. There is, moreover, still boundless, fathomless, measureless, great potential and great function yet to be realized. There's no beginning to practice or end to enlightenment. There's no beginning to enlightenment or end to practice. Awakening is not worth much of anything if it makes you feel like you're done. That, that is major blindness. Roshi Kaplan used to say, awakening does not 
completely transform us, but it establishes the basis for transforming ourselves. The basis is seeing that there's no self to transform. We're not stuck with a self. That is a huge advantage over what was previously one's belief in a, in a separate self. Once we've even glimpsed into this, the illusory nature of the self, then, then that really opens things up for um, more rapid change. He continues, a sutra says, all things are established on a non-abiding basis. Let's just stop there. Non-abiding because there is no substance to anything. Another sutra says, arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. This, that's from the uh, Diamond Sutra. Arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. You could say that this is, this is our assignment, our mission in Zen practice. Whatever we're doing, wherever we are, whomever we're with, to arouse the mind, meaning to be alert, aware, without abiding in anything, without getting stuck in anything. Staying fluid, like clouds in water, adapting, accommodating, to the situation, to the context we're in. This is what all this is for, to, to flow like water, to not uh, stand rigidly against circumstances, try to oppose circumstances, but to move with them as called for. Uh, then he continues, an ancient Zen master said, don't mind anything or dwell on anything, whether of the world or beyond the world. It's, it's a little hard to know what he means by mind. Don't mind anything. Um, maybe don't resist that which, which can't be changed. If something can't be changed, don't whine and complain and try to resist it or try to change what can't be changed. If it's raining, don't mind the rain.
whether of the world or beyond the world. Beyond the world would mean Maybe what he means, what the translator renders here, is uh, not to um, not react to, well, we can just say meditation states. Don't mind anything. Um, Lynchy, Rinzai, um, is, is supposed to have said, there is nothing I dislike. Well, that would be a remarkable state of equanimity. There is nothing I dislike. How about uh, oh, I don't know. How about uh, being scraped with sandpaper? Really? Not to dislike that? I think a better translation, and I I heard this uh, more recently, is there is nothing to be disliked. That gets more at the heart of it. This is this teaching of of shunyata, no-thingness, emptiness. There is nothing in this whole world of phenomena that can be disliked because it's there is nothing it all is nothing and finally uh, Yuan Wu says if you dwell on anything you get stuck and cannot change effectively okay we just were talking about that. And then next, when you are aware of the completeness, the fluidity and boundlessness of fundamental mind, how can sense objects be partners to it? True mind is utterly free, open and pure, clear and ethereal. Keep thoroughly aware of it and do not allow superficiality. Then it is so high there is nothing above it. So broad it is boundless, clean and bare, perfectly round. This true mind is without contamination or contrivance. Without contamination. Back to the Buddha. This mind is pure and self-luminous. This is what awakening confirms. For all of our defilements, all of our yucky private thoughts and impulses and urges, still this mind remains unstained, like the lotus arising up from the mud, resplendent, pure. No matter what we do, this self-nature is unchanged. It can't be stained. 
just let me just pluck out this one, these two words perfectly round perfectly round is about as close as we can come um, in 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 form in some kind of a shape or form it's about as close as we can come to perfection and so the calligraphic circle what the Japanese call the Enso uh, has always been a favorite uh, symbol in Zen for perfection, limitlessness, timelessness. And Enso is the form of formlessness. Next is uh, the great Zen master Foyan. Uh, just a little bit about him here in the appendix. Uh, well, <laughs> the uh, translator, editor here says Foyan taught people to detach from thought. Duh. An exercise that does not require stopping the mind, but is used to achieve the same purpose. We do not teach you to annihilate random thoughts, suppress body and mind, close your eyes and consider this Zen, he said, stressing the importance of what he called saving energy, effortlessly preserving the integrity of the original mind. This uh, phrase, saving energy, um, it's also, you read, uh, conserving energy, is something that crops up uh, surprisingly often in Chan texts. Surpri I say surprisingly because it, uh, you don't, I don't read it anywhere else. I don't read it in Japanese Zen texts. Conserving energy, saving energy. We always... we have this this habit or this tendency to scatter our energy getting distracted looking here there everywhere and this this takes a toll on our energy level and we discover this in sashin especially a longer sashin where we're spending so much time hours and hours a day of collecting our mental energy, drawing it together into a focus on the practice that we discover for ourselves that, that the energy builds. Yes, if we're for getting less sleep than usual, there's going to be in a, in a way, there's going to be some tiredness, but underneath that tiredness is this, um, growing this mounting feeling of vitality or energy it's not it doesn't just uh, increase and increase and increase uh, without 
any interruption. We go through periods where we're tired, maybe even exhausted. But overall, uh, I don't think anyone has ever come out of a sashin without this um, kind of subterranean, this uh, energetic core, no matter how tired uh, you might be otherwise. So this is conserving energy instead of um, squandering it in thoughts. Thoughts really drain our energy. But anyway, um, Foyan is uh, also Sung Dynasty, uh, the year born 1067, died 1120. He's one of the very most famous of the Chinese masters. Here's here's an interesting <coughs> entry. This is him talking. Once there was a monk who specialized in the Buddhist precepts and had kept to them all his life. Once when he was walking at night, he stepped on something. It made a squishing sound. And he imagined he had stepped on an on a egg-bearing frog. Okay, a pregnant frog. This caused him no end of alarm and regret in view of the Buddhist precept against taking life. And when he finally went to sleep that night, he dreamed that hundreds of frogs came to him demanding his life. The monk was terribly upset. But in the morning, he went and looked and found that what he had stepped on was an eggplant an overripe eggplant. At that moment, his feeling of distress and uncertainty suddenly stopped, and for the first time, he realized the meaning of the saying that there is no objective world. Then he finally knew how to practice Zen. No objective world. It just means that we can't really separate the world, what we call the world, from the mind. Where is there a world apart from mind? Where is there um, a world apart from he or she who experiences it? It's, it's an abstraction. No such thing. We can't separate subject and object. For things are things because of mind, and mind is mind because of things. The, uh, of course, the point of the story is that uh, we, through our false imaginings, our uh, what the what sometimes in Buddhism is called a subjective emotional consciousness, uh, we see things or create things that aren't there. I suddenly am remembering uh, a sashin before we we had Chapin Mill, we had our, all of our sashins at Arnold Park. And there was one where uh, 
right here on the street uh, on Arnold Park, right across the street from the Zendo, from the center, uh, a cat got itself up in a tall tree and couldn't find its way down and began meowing and meowing in the most piteous, piteous way. And this didn't just go on for an hour or two. This went on for hours. It went on into the next day. I don't remember if it went on through the night. Um, but people were... <laughs> I remember... Um, well, first let me say that that those of us who were in charge of the Sashin were doing everything we could to see if we could get that cat down. We called the fire department. They said, no, we can't do it. I can't remember why, but they, they said they couldn't do it. Um, it just wouldn't come down, and but it wouldn't stop. It's yowling either. And it was just raising hell with people in the zendo. And there was there was one doksan where a woman came to me, and, and very upset, and she said, "Can't you do something about that cat? Have you no compassion?" <laughs> so there is so so much pain and distress we cause ourselves unnecessarily because of uh, the way we interpret things that doesn't match reality, uh, the way we project our ideas onto other people. Probably no single human being uh, projects uh, as habitually as the projector-in-chief who, whose every word, every accusation seems to be projection, just projecting what he won't face in himself or doesn't want to. So to have a um, healthy um, wariness about our perceptions is part of really being a, a student of the Dharma, uh, being careful to, to be aware uh, that we may not be seeing things as they are either before or after awakening. It's, a, it's an important thing. I think, I think uh, the more sashins we go to, the more wary we become of our perceptions. And uh, we've been humbled by the ways in which we create things in our mind that aren't there. He, uh, 
uh, Foyan continues, why do you not understand your nature when it is inherently there? There is not much to the Dharma. It just requires getting to the essential. We do not teach you to annihilate random thoughts, suppress body and mind, shut your eyes and say, this is Zen. Zen is not like this. I mentioned this the first day, I think, but we, we do have to be uh, also wary of uh, our eyes when we're sitting and uh, not let them close because uh, we can't be in the clearest state, in the most alert state with our eyes closed. Sometimes it takes a while to break the habit of sitting, letting the eyes close. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an important, it's worth investing in that effort. Because once you get used to having them farther up the wall, two, two and a half feet up the wall, then that becomes the most natural thing. Here's a very short one. Search back into your own vision. Think back to the mind that thinks. Who is it? Or what is it? What is it that thinks? Same thing. Or what is Mu? Next, Zen enlightenment is as if you have been away from home for many years when you suddenly see your father in town. You know him right away without a doubt. There is no need to ask anyone else whether he is your father or not. Well, of course, mother too. Uh, but this is uh, a Chinese... Uh, master and uh, would have been um, deeply conditioned to see things through a Confucian lens which uh, places the father-son um, relationship as the most important Then enlightenment is as if you have been away from home for many years and then you're back home. You recognize this realm of pure direct experience as home. You recognize, recognize 
or maybe even better, this comes after having decognized, if that's a word, probably not, having uh, gotten free of uh, the shackles of conceptualization Another short one, if you want to understand Zen, what does that mean? It just means understand reality. You must question inwardly to practice it deeply, to investigate deeply. If you question deeply, transcendental knowledge appears. Well, just uh, understanding, understanding beyond our ordinary way of understanding things. Question, if you question deeply, this is uh, particularly uh, aimed at people working on a koan. What really distinguishes a koan from uh, other practices is the element of questioning. Or uh, really, I think a better word is wondering. Wondering what is Mu. Wondering what this is. What it is, wondering who I am, what I am. It's all in the wondering. Here's another one. It is as though you have an eye that sees all forms, but does not see itself. This is how your mind is. Its light penetrates everywhere and engulfs everything. So why does it not know itself? We all know that the the eye doesn't see itself, the tongue doesn't taste itself, the nose doesn't smell itself, and the mind doesn't know itself in that sense. The mind can come to understand uh, its psychological dynamics, but how do you know mind with a capital M. How do you know the knower? There's a koan in the Blue Cliff record, number 86, where Umon says to the monks, everyone has his own light, though when you try to see it, you cannot. Everything is darkness. Everything is darkness. What is everybody's light, he asks. And then he answers himself, the temple storeroom, the tower gateway. 
It's a tough koan. But as with virtually all koans, it has it's simple to present once one understands it. One more than I tell people to get to know themselves. Some people think this means what beginners observe and consider it easy to understand. Reflect more carefully in a more probing manner. What do you call yourself? When he says some people think this means what beginners observe, uh, I think what he's saying is uh, they think that it's uh, what we come to learn about ourselves, the way we uh, oh habitually think and act and react. Um, this is knowing about ourselves, but what is it that you call yourself? S-E-L-F. What is that? Who is that? It is the question. How can we be sure of anything until we have come to understand the nature of self? Right. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.